My name is Nell, and I am a very grateful member of Al-Anon. <laughs> Hello, everybody. And I want to tell you something. I hear it 33 and a third, too. <laughs> and I noticed that... Uh, Tonight we'll have a meeting for the hearing impaired, and I'm so grateful. <laughs> when you're saying the Lord's Prayer, I'm saying our Father, and you're saying Amen. <laughs> but that's okay. I want to thank you so much for letting me be here. I have to tell you, when uh, we got off the plane yesterday, please see dinghies. <laughs> We're at the gate with a balloon and red carnations that said, Welcome, Nell and Cleve. And I've told them, especially this one over here, Marilyn, that they really didn't need the balloon or the <laughs> red carnations. I believe I could have spotted her anywhere as an Alana. <laughs> sort of before and after, don't you think? <laughs> but I really identify with Marilyn. This one is so calm and serene <laughs> and sweet. <laughs> I never identified with anyone very sweet, <laughs> just precious maybe, but not really sweet. <laughs> I listened carefully as each speaker uh, recounted, you know, what they had received in their room, the basket of fruit and the flowers. I wanted to make sure that they got something that I didn't, and <laughs> I am appreciative of that. Most of all, I'm appreciative for, of your love and the warmth that you have shown to Cleve and I. And I want to thank you for letting my reason for being come with me. Uh, so many times we share together and you don't know how neat it is to be standing up here and know that he has no chance of rebuttal. <laughs> <laughs> he thought he'd get me right before the meeting started and he told me that uh, the gentleman tonight had agreed to rebut for him, and I don't think that's fair. <laughs> you tell your own darn story, Cliff, <laughs> and I'll tell Cleve. <laughs> Speaking of Cleve, I think that uh, you should meet him, and uh, I'll just ask him to stand right now. Come on. Uh, <laughs> The reason I do that, I refer to him from time to time just to let you know how much I suffered, of course. <laughs> and I think he's so cute. You see, when he drank, he wore black. A black suit, black high-heeled boots, a black string tie, a black hat, and colored glasses. And I stomped the hell out of that black hat and colored glasses <laughs> before I found out I could whip him. <laughs> but he would leave the house in the morning and I'd stand at the door and say, well, if anything happens to him, he's dressed for it. Ah, <laughs> uh, and uh, he'd go out, you know, and of course my every day, I didn't plan a day until after 10 o'clock because I wanted to know how drunk he was going to get. And uh, by noon, if he wasn't in jail, I thought, well, maybe, you know, I could get on with what I had in mind. I'm going to tell this about him. I have his permission. In fact, he told me that I could tell you several things about him, but I'm not going to. 
Cleve is a state trial judge, has been for over 20 years. And he is the only judge in the state of Oklahoma that's been locked up in his own jail 17 times. <laughs> He knows the meaning of the word compassion and has a marvelous court program. But I want to tell you a little bit about me. I am not a Catholic, and I am not from California. <laughs> and I gather that you have an equal rights committee organizing this thing. I grew up in a small town in southern Oklahoma. Ryan, Oklahoma. Now, when you said this morning that you were, your mother was born here in Minnesota, someone hollered. You didn't hear anybody say a word then, did you? <laughs> and I had wonderful parents, very handsome father, and I have a beautiful mother. And there was no drinking. Alcohol was never a problem in our home. And I had a marvelous childhood, and I felt loved. And I had a father that I learned to manipulate at a very early age because I found out that the only thing that ever made me uncomfortable was the word no. <laughs> and I found out that I could cry and be pitiful, and my daddy would change all of his no's to yeses. And I think this is what I looked for in a man. My mother was much wiser. I didn't often ask her anything that required a yes or no because she didn't uh, fall victim to this manipulation. And uh, on occasion when she did say no and I threatened to run away from home, she helped me pack. <laughs> But one of my earliest acts of getting even was with my mother because she had punished me and told me to go stand in the closet and she didn't shut the door or anything. She just made me stand in the closet and I cried and blew my nose on her dresses. <laughs> so I learned at an early age to blow my nose on people when it was necessary. I was not an only child, but um, I was almost seven when my little brother was born, and I never remember feeling that I lost my place. And I was uh, a freshman in college when my sister was born, and I didn't lose my place. And I loved my brother, and I loved my sister, and I loved my father, and I loved my mother and I felt loved. And there were not many no's in my life, so life was good. It was wonderful. And I had a God. Now, I, I want to tell you about, now, in, uh, when you're Catholic, they say they get you with guilt. When you're Protestant, they get you with fear. Uh, in a small southern Oklahoma town, we had what were called revivals in the summer. 
And there wasn't much to do there, so everybody went to everybody else's revival, the Methodists, the Baptists, and the Nazarenes. And since the churches were not air-conditioned at that time, they had a huge open tabernacle where they held these revivals. And they had evangelists come in. And oh, they were wonderful. They brought all of this music, and they had these wonderful stories. Right at the end of the sermon, and they'd tell about, you may walk out of here tonight and get struck dead and go to hell if you don't come right down here and give your heart to Jesus Christ. Well, I'll tell you, after 43 verses, it just says, I am. And sitting there and fanning with a fan that has Grantham Funeral Home written on the back. <laughs> Honey, you think, and I would be saved in all three revivals every summer. <laughs> My mother talked to me about this. She suggested that public confession was probably only necessary one time. <laughs> but my God was a God of fear. Until I heard a Sunday school teacher talk about my Heavenly Father. And I like this because... I could compare a heavenly father with an earthly father, and my earthly father was so good that I thought, if my heavenly father is half as good as my earthly father, I've got it made. So I liked the idea of having a heavenly father. Didn't need him very much because I had that earthly father that did anything I wanted him to do. Well, I, I was sort of a planner, and I was a dreamer, and when the kids came to play with me, I planned what we would play, and we played play-like, only we called it plaque. And I'd say, now, plaque, I'm so-and-so, and you're so-and-so, and plaque, I say this, and when I say this, you say that. Now, if they didn't plaque the way I wanted them to, we didn't play very long. And if they didn't say what I wanted them to say, I didn't like to play with them. Then I started going to a lot of movies, and I got a lot of ideas, romantic ideas, about the man that I'd like to marry. And I grew up during the war. So there were a lot of wonderful movies, war stories, war movies. Very romantic, very sad. And I liked the pilots. When I was 16, I was invited to visit a friend at the University of Oklahoma. The war was over, and the boys were back. And she got me a date with Cleve. There he stood, and he had on a tweed coat, Nargyle socks, and loafers, and a fraternity pin. I knew he was studying for a profession. And I went over a little mental checklist that I had, and all I had to scratch out was tall. <laughs> And I thought, that's it. We had a wonderful time, and he, he spent the evening telling me stories of how he had won the war. <laughs> and I believed him. And then he gave me a nickel. This is how long ago it was. And he said, when you become of age now, give me a call. And I didn't forget that because my parents sent me to a girl's school. <laughs> then I had my next date with him when I was 19 years old. And that was in December of 1948. 
And I planned and I dreamed, and in June of 1949, we got married. And we had a wonderful life. And drinking was a fun part of our life. And I liked it because, as I told you, we certainly didn't have it in our home when I was growing up, and I thought it was sophisticated. And when you're from Ryan, Oklahoma, you think a lot of things are sophisticated. And we lived in Tulsa for a while, and I'll never forget the first cocktail party that I had. And when Cleve drank too much, I thought that just made him cuter. And I had a good time. And it was fun. Then we moved back to Warwick, where Cleve was raised. He wanted to hang out a shingle and practice law. And they were glad to have us back in Warwick because it's not a very big town, and we proceeded to make a place for ourselves there in the community and the church and the civic organizations and doing all the things that were expected of us. And there was a real fun crowd, a lot of young couples who were all building their lives after the war and having the, they had pretty much the same plans and the dreams that we did and struggles. And Cleve was appointed county judge. Oklahoma was dry. We had access to the confiscated hooch in the sheriff's vault, and we were a very popular young couple. <laughs> and drinking was a fun part of it all. Then I decided that uh, it was time to start my family. And I was going to have a little boy. And things didn't work out that way. So I started making the rounds of doctors and specialists, trying to find out why this dream wasn't coming true in my life. And finally, after a lot of tests, I was told that I would never bear a child. And you know who I got mad at? I got mad at God because I'd cried and prayed for that baby. And I thought he said no. And I'm so glad I came to you because I have found since being here that God's no to me are just preludes to much better yeses in my life. And if I'd learned nothing else, it would be marvelous. That one thing would be marvelous. Cleve told me, he said, you really don't have to worry much now about adoption because I have a lot of kids come through my court who are dependent and neglected and need a home just as much as we need and want a child. But it didn't happen as soon as I wanted it to. It seemed forever. And I started a private kindergarten so I'd have contact with children, even if they were other people's children. And then one day, in December of 1957, a little six-year-old boy came into our lives, and this wasn't what I'd planned. I wanted a baby, but somehow I knew Mike was my little boy. And his mother had died of alcoholism. His father was having a struggle with the bottle and the second wife. And Mike climbed up into my lap and he said, you're my third mother and the goodest one I ever had. <laughs> and he punched all my buttons and I was going to be the goodest mother he ever had. So I decided we wouldn't drink anymore. And I talked to Cleve about it and I said, I just don't think that alcohol is necessary in our lives anymore. And I'll never forget the look on his face. <laughs> I didn't understand it at the time. And he said, I'll tell you what, Nell, I won't drink in front of the boy. And I thought, well, okay, we'll see how this works. And you know, he didn't. 
I never saw him take another drink. I don't know when the disease of alcoholism starts. I don't know the beginning. But I know that it was about this time that it manifested itself in me. Because I didn't know what was happening in our home. He quit minding. He said no a lot. And I thought it was my fault. Here, here we were, doing all the things that I had planned and that I had dreamed, and we had this little boy that needed us, that we needed. Why was he drinking so much? I didn't know what was happening. And I was afraid to ask him. I was afraid he'd tell me it was me. And naturally, I didn't want anyone else to know why they might come take this baby away from us. So we didn't talk about it. We pretended a lot of times it wasn't even happening. And Cleve had some close friends that I thought might be able to help. And you know, I think that some of your close friends are in denial just as much as the family is sometimes. Because they told me no. They didn't think he had problems. And I wasn't about to tell them some of the things that were happening. And they made me feel better because I thought, well, maybe there really isn't a problem. Maybe I'm not to blame. Maybe things will get better. About three years after we adopted Mike, we had an opportunity to adopt a baby girl. We got a phone call about her. She was a preemie, five weeks old. And oh, I knew that little girl was mine. And I told Cleve. And he said, well, I, I, I think that's just what we need. I said, only if you promise me only if you promise me you'll quit drinking so much. Well, he did. He promised me. He said, hey, I'm getting ready to go out of public office into private practice, and now things are going to be different. Things are going to change. And I believed him, and we got in that car and drove several hundred miles and picked up a five-week-old, three-and-a-half-pound baby girl and brought her home just like we knew what we were doing. <laughs> Cleve went out of public office, he went into private practice, and things changed. They got worse. <laughs> that old merry-go-round kept going faster and faster, and I didn't know how to get off. I didn't know what was happening. I thought I had failed. I had failed. People started finding out. Now I want to tell you something. If, if any of you Al-Anons are here and you do not live in a little town with a practicing alcoholic, move. <laughs> Teach Sunday school, be a den mother, and let him get real public with that drinking. You could say, I'm going to kill him, and they'll say, honey, why don't you? Society will condone every action because, you see, this happened to me, and people in this little town found out how much he was drinking. 
and they knew that I knew that they knew. That was when I started going to town without makeup. And I'd walk up all up and down all two blocks of Main Street of Warica, and I'd hear people say, God love her. Bless her heart. And I'd go in, and invariably somebody would come up and put their arm around me, and they'd say, how do you stand it? And I'd just flop my head over and say, I don't know. It was just wonderful. <laughs> you see, I didn't let these people know what was going on behind closed doors. I was beating the hell out of him. <laughs> I was the violent one in the family, and I'll never forget the first time I hit him. I think it was much like the alcoholic taking that first drink. Man, it changed the way I felt. It was just wonderful. <laughs> and it became a compulsion. I could not hit one time. <laughs> And I didn't tell them what was happening. I went to my doctor and I went to my minister and, you know, they would answer my questions with questions. How do you stand it and why do you stay? And I'd leave their office feeling guilty for loving a drunk. Because at that time I didn't know why I stayed. I found out after I came to you I stayed because I became emotionally dependent upon him to fulfill all of my neurotic needs. If he had sobered up, I'd gone stark raving mad. <laughs> I would have lost that whipping post. My doctor gave me a little bottle of Milltown, and he said, Nell, I don't think you're sleeping enough. Why don't you try taking these? And I took one one night, and I did. I went to sleep, and I didn't like that. Because, you see, I didn't know when he came in or what his condition was, and you can't cope when you don't know what's happening. So I flushed those things down the john. You never know when you're going to have to get up in the middle of the night and go look for them. <laughs> but thank God that was my reaction to Milltown. We had one couple in Warica who were attending AA in Al-Anon in Wichita Falls, Texas. This is 35 miles from us. Cave had attended an AA meeting or two. He was interested when he was in the uh, district attorney's office because he knew he was dealing with a lot of alcoholics. But, of course, he didn't think he was one, and I didn't think he was one. And when they asked me to go to Al-Anon, I didn't know what they were talking about. But I agreed to go. And I walked into a room of the loveliest ladies, and they were smiling, and they welcomed me. But you know what I saw? I saw a group of people who hadn't heard what I was going through. And I proceeded to tell them. And I remember how rude the chairman was that night trying to take control of her meeting. <laughs> and they kept talking about their program and they'd point to the steps on the wall 
And finally I stopped and I read their old steps and I came to number 12 and it said, carry the message. And I said, Eureka, I found it. I know why I'm here. I picked number 12 and went from there. (laughs) This is where you go to learn how to sober up your alcoholic. I went to the AA room and I gathered up all of the free literature. I took it home and I tastefully decorated the house with it. (laughs) And when he didn't read it, I read it to him. Occasionally he would go to a meeting with us, but he clipped his fingernails all during the meeting, and you know what I had to do. I had to talk about that meeting all the way home. He probably missed something (laughs) that he needed to hear. (laughs) I found God again. I knew that I was his right-hand man, and all I had to do was to keep him posted on Cleve's antics, where he was when he was in jail. I never understood why God couldn't tr- strike when Cleve was in jail. We, were, uh, we have a title company also, and naturally I had to go to work. He, uh, when he was in private practice, he couldn't keep a legal stenographer. And my typing wasn't too swift, but I could lie better than the rest of them, so I went to work for him. And I'd walk from the office over to the courthouse, And I can remember the prayers I'd send up because there was nothing between me and God as I walked across the street. And Cleve was on the fourth floor in jail. And I'd tell God to strike. And he didn't. Oh, the chances he missed. (laughs) And Cleve would leave that jail with a cellmate as a client. And I would think he always comes out smelling like a rose. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) But I couldn't understand. I couldn't understand. One night, I heard a tape by Chuck C. It was a talk Chuck made at the top of Texas back in the 60s. I had never heard anything like it. This man talked about the prodigal son and wove it into his story. And if any of you have ever heard Chuck tell the story of the prodigal son, you know what I'm talking about. I thought, I've got to get hold of that tape. That's going to do it. That's going to save his soul. And they let me have that tape. And I took it home, and I offered Cleve the opportunity of hearing it. And he was real tacky about it. (laughs) They told me now and on whatever I did to do with love, and I prefaced everything with, I love you. But but I kept telling him what a marvelous message this man had. And he kept telling me he didn't have time to listen to that. And I prayed about it. And I was at the beauty shop. And I was sitting under the hairdryer and I was reading a magazine. And there was this article that said, Learn a foreign language in your sleep. And I said, thank you, God. (laughs) And I went home. Now, this was an old reel-to-reel tape. And I went home, and I put this. I wasn't very mechanically minded either, but I finally got that dude on there and ready to play and put it under the bed. Now comes the sacrifice. I had to let him back in the bedroom. (laughs) But you know how we love to sacrifice. And as soon as he was asleep, all I had to do was reach down 
Check on the tape player, and on came Chuck C., the prodigal son. Now, I did this for several nights in a row. And it wasn't long before he developed a very deep resentment for Chuck C., <laughs> the prodigal son, and me. <laughs> he chose to sleep on the couch or the floor. <laughs> but, you know, I couldn't understand. I couldn't understand why I wasn't getting through to him. And I didn't like it when someone suggested that Al-Anon was for me. I heard a man in uh, Midland, Texas say that just being related to an alcoholic doesn't necessarily make you an Al-Anon. I thought he was looking at me, you know, because <laughs> I identified with that. I identified with that. One night I heard a lovely Al-Anon say no one feels as unloved as, or as unlovely as the wife of an alcoholic, and I thought, right on. But she added something. She said, unless it's the alcoholic himself. And I thought, oh my God, is he as lonely as I am? And does he feel as unloved as I do? And for the very first time in a long, long time, I had a feeling that he might have. We were sharing a feeling again. Loneliness. But we were at least sharing a feeling. And I developed just an inkling of compassion for him. And I went back to those meetings and I looked at those steps again. And do you know that I, I could not believe, I could not believe I was powerless because I believed I was God's right-hand man in sobering that dude up. I think that I had to do everything I had to do before I came to believe. You hear many an alcoholic say that, and I believe that for me. I looked at uh, the second step. I didn't think my life was unmanageable, and I didn't think I was insane, and I had a higher power. I thought that everything that I was doing was simply what anyone would be doing if they were in my place. I thought I was a wonderful mother. When I got up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning to go look for the, their father, I didn't leave them there by themselves. I woke them up <laughs> and put them in the back of the station wagon where I kept a bed. And I can remember they'd cry and beg to stay in bed. And I'd say, you don't think I'm that kind of mother, do you? You don't think I would go off and leave you here alone? And they'd get out, and they'd go out to that station wagon, and they'd call, crawl up in the back, and they'd cover up. And we would drive the streets and the alleys. And sometimes they didn't go back to sleep. And I can remember Mike saying, I think I see his car. Becca saying, haven't we found him yet? And I thought I was a good mother. <laughs> Rebecca's first sentence was, is him dead? <laughs> We'd come in the house and find old Cleve lying in state in the living room floor, and she'd say, is him dead? <laughs> and I'd say, no, darling, daddy's resting, and we're going to play a little game, and it's called jumping over daddy. 
And I'd jump over him and I'd kick him and I'd say, oops, I missed. I'll have to do that again. <laughs> they say, look at what the alcoholic is doing to the family. When I really looked, I know who did what to my family. You see, they didn't expect anything from Cleve. And they never really knew what they were going to get from me. Pat and I were talking about a meditation that we read today, talking about the power of words. And when I read that, I not only thought about the power of words from this podium and the power that I have heard since last night, but I thought of the power of my own words on my children. Words, not so much action. I don't remember spanking them very much, but oh, the things I would say and the power of those words, and thank God you gave me a way to handle the guilt. I can remember there was a little restaurant right across from Cleve's office that served nothing but fish. And we ate there night after night because I could sit at a table in front and watch what was happening across the street. I could see who was going in and out of that office. And you know, my kids got where they begged for peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> One afternoon, he came home unexpectedly. There he stood in that old black suit, black hat, boots, tie. And I asked him what he was doing there. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and he gave me some smart remark. And I said, well, you certainly can't stay. And he let me know that he was going to stay. And I said, go to the basement. I have company coming, and we're going to have a table of bridge. So you go to the basement, and for some fool reason, he did. <laughs> well, the girls came, and I'd put up the card table. You know, this look we get on our face, everything's all right, leaving those cards out. <laughs> Mike came running in the back door, and he said, hey, mother, he's getting out. What are you going to do? <laughs> Caged and he was loose. But you know, so many of these things that happened, I created. I created. And I couldn't believe I was insane. But I want to tell you something. It's hard being married to a drunk lawyer. When I threatened to leave him, he offered to represent me. sick I was, I made an appointment with him. <laughs> I couldn't afford the old fool. <laughs> the whole time he was sitting there telling me he wanted me to have the best. <laughs> I couldn't believe I was insane. So you know what I did. I had to hurt some more. I had to do a lot of other crazy things. One afternoon, I was hurting real bad. And when I hurt real bad, I flattened my rocker. And I rocked Rebecca. I rocked that kid till her feet drugged the floor. Because that made me feel good. And I kept that rocker sort of in front of the front door. So, and the door unlocked. 
And that was because if somebody came by, I didn't have to break the pole. You see, that was pitiful. When I came to you, I was not angry. I was precious and pitiful. Everybody in town told me I was. And I could feel pitiful in this rocker. We had met a couple in Wichita Falls that I love very much. I loved them because they loved Cleve. I was tired of people not loving Cleve. And they could come to my house day or night, and it was okay. And I didn't feel that I had to hide him if he were drunk, because they seemed to understand. This particular afternoon, Cleve was in jail, and that made my story better, but Corny stopped me when he came in. He said, now there isn't anything that you can tell me about Cleve that I don't already know. You see, honey, he's an alcoholic. Now, what's your problem? Do you ever feel that God put a person in your life and the words in their mouth just when you needed them? I was ready to hear. I heard what that man said to me that day in May, 1965. I'd been with you over three years. But for the first time, I heard. And I knew, I knew that he was not my problem. I was my problem. And it gave me a freedom. Eve, I loved what you talked about this morning when you talked about freedom. It gave me freedom when I could admit that I was my problem and I cried out to the God of my understanding. And I said, God, I tried to help you and you didn't listen. So I'm going to give him to you. Oh, God, help me. You see, I thought I got even with God that day. But oh, the relief and the relief. And oh my, he has helped me. I'm not going to tell you that this will happen in every situation. But two weeks after I took my first step, he took his last drink. Monday, May the 26th, that man will celebrate 21 years. By the grace of God, not by the grace of Nell, I can tell you. <laughs> I tried. We started this walk together, and do you know what we found? We found healing in a relationship. I think that's just as miraculous as a physical healing. Because I found there was anger. There was resentment. There was hate in me. And I did not know what to do with those things when they surfaced because you talked about forgiveness and I couldn't forgive. 
My sponsor told me over and over, now do the things that you can and leave the rest to God. What you can't handle, he will. Just keep on with what you can. And that I tried to do. And one day the anger was gone and the forgiveness came. And the most wonderful thing about that was that then I felt forgiven. I don't know which comes first. Being forgiven or forgiving. It doesn't matter. But I keep this thing pasted in my ODAT that reads, He who cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must cross if he would ever reach heaven, for everyone has need of forgiveness. What a gift. What a gift. I am so grateful for that gift. We will celebrate 37 years of marriage in June. You see, over half of our married life has been spent in this fellowship. Now, I'm not going to tell you, it's all been... Rosie, honey, it hadn't, you know. He's never had a slip drinking, but I've had a lot of slips. A moment of compassion, isn't that what they call an L non slip? <laughs> but you see, this program is ever new in my life, and I must stay close to you because I can so easily revert back to not being able to handling the nose, to get wrapped up in my dreams and my own perception of reality that isn't very good sometimes. So I'm grateful to be invited to weekends like this, to hear the people that I've heard, the power of the words from the podium, the power of the words one-to-one that we share the power of the love that we find. How grateful I am to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. How grateful I am for that man from Alcoholics Anonymous who had the courage and the love to say, now what is your problem? I wouldn't miss an open AA meeting. I might miss something that is there for me. All these kids. I've been so blessed with my kids. Not because of anything I did, but because of what you did with their father and with their mother. We haven't had a drinking or drug problem. We've been most fortunate there. Mike is such a fine young man. He'll retire from the Navy in about three years. He's married, married his childhood sweetheart. They have three darling kids. I'm a wonderful mother-in-law and I'm a wonderful grandmother. (laughs) That's because they live in Florida and I live in Warwick, Oklahoma. It just isn't necessary to dabble in their lives all the time, is it? 
Oh, there are times that I care, and there are times that I've hurt again, and there are times I've had to release these adult kids again. Mike was off the coast of Lebanon about three years ago, two years ago. He was on the um, USS Eisenhower, a carrier, the time when all the Marines were killed, remember? News came that they were going to fly a kamikaze plane into that ship. There was nothing I could do. I couldn't fix it. I couldn't protect him. But you see, you told me that God loved my kids more than I did. And I even got calls from people who knew of our situation, calls from program people from Canada, from all over, notes, just letting me know that they cared. And they were winging their prayers for Mike. And again, I knew that blessed release and relief that comes when we can let something go and give it to the Father. Mike came home. Not as soon as was planned, but he came home. His wife and kids had been in Morica the six or seven months it amounted to that he was at sea. And what a glorious occasion it was when we went to that airport in Dallas and met him. Shortly before he came home, I had a letter from him. He said, Mom, I think it's time that I visit with my natural father. Do you mind seeing if you can find him for me? It's strange how my higher power works. A few years before, or just a few years after Cleve and I came into the program, we were sharing one night in Wichita Falls, Texas. And there were people from Dallas there. And a woman came up to me afterwards and asked if I minded telling her what Mike's name was when we took him. And I told her. She said, I am his great aunt. You see, God had put that woman in my life. We had kept in touch. And I knew where to go to find out where his natural father was living. And I want to tell you the feelings I had about that. I wasn't afraid. You taught me how to love him. And I knew that I had nothing to lose, absolutely nothing to lose. So when Mike came home, I had that man's name and our address and phone number for him. And I watched Mike for two or three nights in a row paced by the telephone. Can you imagine his feelings in making the call? Not knowing what sort of reception he would get, but thank God I had told him that his daddy gave him up because he loved him so much. Now that was before program. God gave that to me years ago. I wouldn't have had sense enough to have thought it up on my own. But he made the call and it was good. It was right before Christmas. They wanted to see him. 
He said it was the best Christmas present he ever had. His father said that. And I knew what he was talking about because it was December of 1957 that he was the best Christmas present I ever had. As a result, I was able to write to that man and thank him for the years. And it was such a good feeling to say thank you. We sent pictures of Mac's growing up years. Mac came home again in the summer, and he wanted to make another trip, but he said, Mom, I think I'll wait and go next week because this week is my birthday, and I want to be home for my birthday. You see, I had nothing to lose. All the freedom and the gifts of this program that we experience daily in a world of reality. And I have a choice today to live in that world of reality. And it just isn't necessary for me to send you home if I say, Plack, I say this, and Plack, you say that. And you don't plack the way I want you to. I can love and accept you the way you are. Oh, Rebecca, my little girl, I watched her manipulate her father just like I have mine. <laughs> she got married in May, and she's such a love, such a beautiful gal. Picked such a fine young man. And you know, we'd had problems. Because she dated these creeps. <laughs> I had a hard time releasing Rebecca because she moved in and out so much. <laughs> I still find it hard to release her sometime because she calls so often. She lives in Wichita Falls, Texas. Her baby is due July the 4th. And oh, it's been fun watching her through this pregnancy. She's enjoyed every minute of it. She felt so good and she said such funny things. And she told me the other day, she said, I haven't been getting much sleep. The baby is moving so much. She said, the other night I decided the little thing was hungry and I got up and ate a sandwich. <laughs> Don't you love it? <laughs> when she married, she asked her father to perform the ceremony. He walked her down the aisle and he turned around and performed the ceremony. You know who did all the work. of the caterer. <laughs> but it was okay. She didn't even have the kind of wedding I'd planned or dreamed either. <laughs> but oh, the joy. The gift of love we receive from these kids when we just let them go and let them be the child of God they're meant to be. Hey, you know that baby I prayed for? I hope I'm not talking too long. But I've got to tell you about this one. I quit smoking in 68. Felt weird. Just weird. So, Steve, I said, my whole system's out of whack. He said, go to the doctor. 
I did. I came back. I said, Cleve, we are living proof. You do not have to smoke and drink. Have a good time. I'm pregnant. (laughs) Well, you can imagine the joy. No fool like cool fool. I said, okay, God, if you want me to be the first Medicare maternity case, I will, you know. (laughs) And it was going to be a boy. Planned that. Clay said he'll be a Rhodes Scholar. I said, sure. He says, that is, if he'll... And he said that he's going to win gold medals in the Olympics. I said, sure. Christopher was born. And our dreams were shattered. My baby had Down syndrome. And I cried out to God angrily this time. And I told him to fix it, to change it. And every day I would stand by that baby's bed and I would tell God that I knew he could perform miracles because he had already performed several in our lives. And he did. He performed another one. He changed us. And and truly granted us the serenity to accept that which we could not change. You see, he looked at that kid and he didn't see a darn thing wrong with him because he's pure love. God doesn't really care much about physical ability, you know, or mental ability. He looks on the heart, and he didn't see anything to change with Christopher, because he came into our lives exemplifying the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. He loves you for the joy of loving, and oh, the gifts he has given us. He is pure delight. He was slow. But you know, that was okay too, because in acceptance, we had been given something else. Not expectations, hope. And there's a difference in hope and expectations. In hope, there was trust in this loving God that we had come to know through people like you. That this little boy would do and be all the things that he was supposed to do and be as a child of God. But when he sat alone or when he walked or when he crawled, my heart would explode with gratitude. And I would hold him on my lap and I would thank God that he had walked or he had crawled or that he had sat alone, even though his progress was slow. And when I did this the first time, I knew for the first time how God loved me. Just like I was. With all of my defects of character, he loved me exactly the way I love Christopher. Just the way I am. And he rejoices in my progress even though it's slow. And I knew that. I knew that a little boy they call retarded gave me that marvelous gift. What more could a mother ask? And all the many, many gifts of Christopher.
I want to tell you some of them. I, I still think perhaps my favorite is my camp story about Christopher, and some of you have heard it, but I think I'll continue to tell it because I love it. Christopher couldn't say camp. He said hemp. Now, he couldn't say courthouse. He called it the whorehouse. <laughs> and I want you to know that it was with great restraint <laughs> that I did not say, tell him where daddy works, honey. <laughs> Sometimes I just lost all restraint and would have to do it, you know. <laughs> Christopher had never been to camp, so he didn't know what camp was. He was eight years old. He had never been away from home and stayed. We'd left him with a sitter lots of times, but had never taken him away and left him. So it was really an occasion for all of us. And we were excited about it, and we had the list of things that he was going to need, and we had a lot of fun buying them and telling Christopher that these things were for camp, the sleeping bag, the flashlight, and so forth. And the big day came, and we took Chris to camp. And he jumped out of the car, and he ran up to the first person he saw, and he said, Hi, Ham! <laughs> And the gal had a name tag on, and she said, My name is Barbara. She said, Welcome to camp, Christopher. And he said, Oh. And he flipped on in, you know, and he went up to each person, each adult at the registration table, and he'd look right in their face, and he'd say, Hi, Hemp. And they would all say what their name was and welcome him. Well, you know, when he had made the rounds of the table, he looked a bit disappointed. Where's camp? And we started down to his cabin. And a young man came out who was to be his counselor for the week. His name was Rick. And Christopher ran up to Rick and he stuck out his hand and he said, Hi, Hemp. And Rick stuck out his hand and he said, Hi, Christopher, I'm Kemp. And all oh, the look in that little guy's face. <laughs> and you know, I knew how he felt. I knew how he felt because when I came to you, I didn't know what you were. You held out your arms to me and you said, Hi, Nell. I'm Eleanor. And oh, thank God I stayed like Chris. Like Chris, I couldn't wait to go back. He couldn't wait to get back to camp. The simplicity of that sweet life. We were able to keep him at home until he was almost 12, had a class in public school. And oh, how I loved to go and visit that class. Or attend the programs, because he was always on the program. And I went to the awards assembly the last year that he was there. The teachers got up and they presented awards for perfect attendance, scholastic awards, athletic awards, and then they gave a certificate to the kiddos who had read 25 books or more. Well, you can imagine my surprise when Christopher's teacher went to the podium. And she said, I too have a certificate to give this year. Christopher Largent has read one book. Oh, God, my heart stood still. My little boy had read one book. And I thought, why wasn't I as grateful when those other two read 25 or more? And I knew why. I knew it was because I had put my expectations on them. 
I wasn't very happy about the fact that we had to find a school for him. There was just no money in this small southern Oklahoma town to keep that class. But you know, God's timing is always a lot better than mine. We did find a school 85 miles from home. Christopher was excited because he thought he was going to college. <laughs> and it was a sad day when we packed and he gathered up a box of little toys to take with him. I was almost as sad seeing Bear go to school as I was Christopher. That little panda bear that we had sewn up so many times to take to camp or to take to grandmother's or just to take to town. Sometimes he needed an, uh, his eye on again or his legs sewn on again. And Christopher took Bear to school. Rebecca and Cleve and I went. There were several things that we had to do that day, several formalities that we had to go through, and Christopher kept trying to get us to leave. You see, he was excited about his new experience. And when we told him goodbye and he walked away, we cried. And we cried all the way home. Until we remembered some things that you had told us. And we realized that Christmas happiness did not depend on us. And isn't that wonderful? And we can allow him to be and allow him to enjoy this new experience in his life without holding on. He's home every two weeks. I'll pick him up Monday for the summer. He's there for all vacations. And you know, I must get where my happiness doesn't depend on him so much. And that's hard. Because he exemplifies so many things that you've taught me. And I love this living example in my presence. You know, he was 17 in December. How many of you have a 17-year-old kid that you still stand in line to see Santa with? It's wonderful. We receive rather curious stares as we stand in line, this little gray-haired mother and this kid, you know, this uh, greeting everyone up and down the row. But before long, especially if the line is very long, Christopher has endeared himself to everyone. He talks to the children that are crying and tells them not to be afraid of Santa. And he sings jingle bells and he sings silent night and he enjoys all the simple joys of Christmas that we mess up so with other things. And as we stood there the last time, I put my arm around him and patted his face. And I thought, I'm the only mother in line with a kid that shaves. <laughs> and that's okay. You know, when your kids are 17, you won't get to stand in line like I do. Oh, the gifts. The gifts. This summer I'll be with my family again. And we will sit around the big table together. And because of people like you in my life, I can look at them and count my better yeses 
enjoy the love that an AA and Al-Anon family knows better than anybody. And that's simply because people like you have shared their experience and their hope and their love so freely. I thank you for letting me be here today to share mine with you. God bless.